This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Fire Consultant Corporation. One trait that weaves everyone together in the firefighting industry is the hunger to do something with meaning. If that same passion drives you and you're interested in a fire science or EMS career, Fire Consultant Corporation can be your guiding light to a successful professional journey. Fire Consultant provides learning workshops that will educate you on what it takes to become a firefighter or paramedic. Each seminar is filled with concise, high-quality, step-by-step information on the world of fire science and EMS. Go to fire-consultant.com to find out more information on their next workshop and to find their social media handles to keep updates on everything fire science and EMS. Chicago's Bravest Stories would also like to announce our new partnership with a great supplement company, FNX. If you're looking for a great, reliable, safe supplement to help you get through those hard workouts, look no further. FNX is a premier supplement and fitness apparel supplier. It's founded by athletes. All their products are manufactured here in the United States, actually in Salt Lake City, Utah. They follow all the guidelines provided by the World Anti-Doping Association and is strictly regulated by the FDA. All the supplements have no fillers, no tainted ingredients with products like pre-workout, super greens, proteins, recovery, CBD. Check them out at www.fnxfit.com. And if you type in the referral code Chicago's Bravest, you'll get 15% off their supplements and workout apparel. Again, fnxfit.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Chicago's Bravest Stories. We're back at it again. And today we have a very special guest with us, Tim Walsh, retired Special Operations District Chief. Is that correct, sir? That's correct. Okay. Well, it's an honor having you here. Thank yep. you so much for being here. Um, we got a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump in it. But uh, first and foremost, uh, how's that brandy old fashioned? Not too sweet? Uh, top shelf. Oh, top shelf. <laughs> so before I, I made a promise to somebody, so hold on. Okay. Don't forget. Uh oh. So we're still recording, but it, you when guys asked for people for stories. Uh, a special somebody came uh, and dropped off jelly beans. Dropped off jelly yeah, beans. I saw those on the counter. There. <laughs> yeah, my belly hasn't been so good since I retired. I haven't ate, eaten a whole uh, half bag or a half container of these in a while. Well, those are yours, sir. Okay, they thank you. Off. Can you take a guess who might have come to the studio? Somebody from headquarters. Somebody my, from headquarters. I would, my guess would be Ambrose or, or Arf. It, it was Arf. <laughs> yes. It definitely was Arf. Yep. He, he made a special trip here just to bring you that. That was very nice of him. And stop calling me sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's, uh, let's start from the beginning. Um, what year did you come on the Chicago Fire Department? Uh, so I came on in July of 86 in a class of about 50 single-role paramedics and uh, was probably one of the biggest single-role paramedic classes that the fire department hired. It was the same class where they hired 150 firefighters off the new firefighter list. So there was 200 of us in the academy together. We were only down there six weeks, and I think the firefighters were down there for 12 weeks. So, I mean, tons of great guys and girls that everybody knows and heard of guys that were my mentors and girls that were my mentors my whole career. And some of them, there's still a few left from that July of 86 uh, single-role class. 
what what made you want to get in the fire department? Family? Or, uh... No, no relatives. My my uncles and my grandfathers were all city coppers, and actually we moved out to the suburbs when I was six. So like 1970 from Brainerd, from 89th and Laughlin, that's where I was born and uh, raised in, in the St. Ethelreda Parish. And then we moved to the suburbs uh, out to Hanover Park, which was pretty far away. Uh, my dad was a home builder at the time, and that's where they were building homes. That's where people were moving to. So we moved out there, and when I was in high school, I kind of wanted to be a, a firefighter paramedic. And so I went to the firehouse, and when I was... You went to the firehouse in Hanover Park? In Hanover Park. That's where I started at 15 in 1980 with another guy that's on the job, Tommy Garswick, who's still a fireman on Squad 5. He retires this year. We both started there together. And uh, they had a cadet program for kids that wanted to get involved in the fire service where he actually slept in at the firehouse and stayed there and learned about what it was. And they put me through EMT school. They put me through paramedic school. I went to EMT school at Election Brothers. I went to uh, medic school at Sherman Hospital in Elgin. And they did live fire training there. They had acquired structures. They didn't have a, it wasn't as fancy as it is now. Chief Craig Haig is the chief out there now. It's pretty top shelf. But the guy that broke me in, uh, Kenny Zackard, who retired as the deputy chief there, was my shift commander, and he's the guy that broke me in. And it was kind of a twofold thing. He was a chef by trade. <laughs> no shit. And uh, he taught me how to cook, and I got a job in did his restaurant. Did he cook at the firehouse? He, he cooked for a restaurant, so we were all paid on call at the time. His oh, okay. full-time job was he was an executive chef for two restaurants out in the northwest suburbs made, named Daniels and Litfins. They were very famous at the time, back before I was old enough to drink and, and go nightclubbing. <laughs> but he taught, he gave me a job as a prep cook, and I learned how to cook out there. So I, I picked up a life skill that came in handy in the fire service later on. But he just retired a couple of years ago, too. I started there. And then from there, I moved to Burr's Ambulance because I wanted to put my name on the city list. So they were at 1637 North Cicero. So you were with Burr's as a paramedic? Correct. Okay. Correct. And uh, Paramedic paramedicine then was still pretty new, relatively new. Yeah. So that was probably like um, I left Hanover Park. Like I got out of paramedics. So I'm trying to think now. I started there in 1980. So I probably left there in uh, 82, right after high school or 83. I went to, I might have fudged about my age to get into <laughs> EMT school. In fact, I, I remember the lady asking me, are you old enough to be here? You know, you have to be 18 to be an EMT. I was like, yeah, I'm 18. I think I was 17. <laughs> right, it's I was like those uh, World War II stories you hear about. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, I, I, so then I went to medic school right after high school, and then I left there shortly afterwards. They were going full-time at the time, and everybody that was getting hired was young, between 18 and 25, and I wanted to be busier, so I put my name on the city list. I stayed at Burr's for maybe a year, not even, maybe nine months, how was that? How was that experience? Like, uh, it was predominantly hospital transfers, the but typical private ambulance typical stuff. private ambulance stuff. But the thing that was cool about that, and I tell young paramedics this all the time, is at the time that company had all the VA contracts, so Heinz, Westside, and Lakeside. Lakeside isn't even in business anymore. So I got to meet all these really cool World War II and Korean War vets that were going in for dialysis, and they just wanted to talk about their stories and their history. It was living history, so I still do that. Yeah, yeah and, and instead of instead of not talking about anything and sitting behind them in the jump seat, I would sit next to them on the bench seat and say, "Tell me where you served." That's that's funny. Tell, that's exactly what I still tell, do. Tell me where you've been. Tell me what you did. Tell me about your family. Tell me what impacted your life. And at nineteen, yeah, I mean, 
I didn't serve in the military. I, <clears throat> I had friends that served in the military, and my oldest son served in the military, and my grandfathers and my uncles. But oh, it was some, it was great the stuff. Stories I've heard. Oh, and age. they weren't stories. It was all true factual information, yeah. and they right. tell you, and your mouth hangs open while they're telling you, and you're like, man. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I was 18 when I was doing that, and I was 19 at the time. <laughs> you know, so that was some good stuff. And then I left there. I went to, uh, I worked for Kurtz Ambulance at the East Joliet Fire Station, still there, Briggs and I-80. And I was a contract paramedic out of that firehouse. I worked uh, in Frankfurt as well. That was part of the contract. But I worked with the owner's son, Tommy Vanna, who's still out there now. And uh, nobody wanted to work with him because he was the owner's son. But you guys know me, Vince knows me. I kind of speak my mind and say what's on my mind all the time. So I was an obvious choice to work with the owner's son. And uh, Tommy's a great guy. Him, he and Michelle, uh, his wife, are godparents to one of my sons, and I'm godparents to their daughter, Amy. And uh, it was a fast friendship. And he still, I think he sold the company. I think AMR bought Kurtz, but he still owns funeral homes out there. And then I got called for the fire department in uh, July of 86 with uh, Paul Smith, who retired last year. He was lieutenant on Trek 41, and we were single-role paramedics. So uh, back then when you, you came on, was there still a separation of single-roles and fire? Or there was. Like you guys did a lot together, though. There, You know what? Back then, I, and I think it's still kind of the same wherever you end up. It depends on the firehouse that you end up. But, like, there were some really cool senior guys. When I first came on, I got assigned to 47's house on a second platoon. Johnny Franco and Richie Sturm and Andy Schlee. Uh, the captain was Vern Sobieski, and Jerry Burns was the lieutenant on the engine. Richie Bouchelle was another guy that comes to mind. And all those guys were at my wedding. I, I think I got married, you know, a couple years after I got on the job. My wife, Deb, and I were still married, all her doing not mine <laughs> and uh you know they were great guys they were family men and there was none of this there was not a lot of rub at least for me between the paramedic and the firefighter stuff they uh took care of me they did whatever i needed i helped out where i could when i was in the house uh they had me cook sometimes because they didn't like the, the the swing cook that was cooking because the regular cook was off and a guy like Johnny Franco, who just retired a couple of years ago, worked busy companies his whole career, would jump on the ambulance with my partner, Kevin O'Shea, at the time so well, that I could cook. Cooking? So that I could cook. Oh, yeah, man. I mean. We need to go back to those days. Yeah, we need to go back to those <laughs> days. So those guys there in that firehouse when I was a candidate and when I was an FPM, I only spent a couple of years there. Uh, they were aces, every single one of them. Yeah. yeah so you had a good experience during the time where there was a little friction between the single roles and... Uh, well, I caused some of that friction myself, so yeah. well, well, that's. I think that's a little <laughs> further up. That was during Danny Fabrizio's uh, first or second administration when they were talking about putting us on eight hours. And I was an EMS steward, I think. North Eye was the director of EMS at the time. And uh, there was some pretty heated exchanges about what kind of shift we were going to be put on. So at that time, you were st the, the single-role paramedics were still on the fire schedule right the correct 24 on 48 yeah 24 off. on 48 off with a daily day so um and same for a little time that the firefighters had so what what was the reason that that discussion even came up to change it was the fs flsa lawsuit so okay. if you were on the job at that time and you were part of the FS flsa lawsuit you received a pretty large chunk of money at the time i think i got like 20 grand take home from that lawsuit and that lawsuit was sponsored by the International and Local 2. And then the city was like, well, we can't have these guys working these hours. We can't pay this kind of money going forward. 
So there was negotiations as to what kind of hours we were going to go on to reduce that type of uh, payment. At the time, Local 2, I think Pete O'Sullivan, when they paid out, Pete O'Sullivan was the director of EMS, and Pete kind of put his arm on people, and I kind of helped him do it to donate some of that money to charity, Widows and Orphans Fund. Yeah, Not everybody did it, but I would say there was probably you know, 80 to 90% of the paramedics that were getting free money and it really wasn't free money. I mean, according to the labor laws, it was money that they deserved. But there was some kickback, just like any firehouse when somebody wins money, there yeah. was people kicking back. So I think that was the nexus of the hours change that you guys now know about now. Um, well, so people who are listening that have no clue what you're talking about, um, from what I understand, the Fair Standards Labor fair, Act. Yeah, Fair Labor um, Standards Act. And what it really boiled down to was language. Right. The, they instituted that, you know, what con- constituted hours and a 40 hour work week. And when they wrote it up for firefighting, paramedics weren't included in that language. Correct. So it's just based on a 40 hour work week and the difference between working the full week as opposed to, you know, being, you know, punching a clock from, you know, eight o'clock to four or something like that. So just not including paramedics, the government wound up having to give back all this money that people had already worked against that 40 hours. Correct. So um, they changed that so that they didn't have to pay that money now. Um, And that's when, so now for people who don't know, the single role paramedics work 24 on and then they're off for three days. And we've talked about that with other guests that it, there's not has the continuity between the single roles and the firemen are now different because you're with yep. a different shift every day. Yeah. You only see the other shift twice a month, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it changed things. It changed things substantially, but on the other aspect, on the other hand, and I, Jimmy O'Connell might've talked about this when he was here. Um, that extra day off was huge for me at the time. I was always on busy companies I always had good partners. We'll talk about them in a minute. But um, that extra day off in your own bed was huge. Yeah, I, I had enough time when we switched over that I think I got the almost the full amount of furlough time. I think for one year I only got six days off, and then it was the following year that I picked up the three extra days. The furlough time is different, obviously, but at the time that I was doing it, I really enjoyed the extra third day off and we weren't working the overtime that you guys are working now. We weren't getting forced back. Um, well, we, how many ambulances were there when you were well, there? There weren't a lot, 49. Yeah. So yeah, I was assigned to ambulance 24 that was out of 47's house and that's 55's quarters now. But uh, we covered from 63rd street on the North to the Lake on the East cause there was no ambulance 50 and then to Halstead street on the West. And then we went as far South as probably about, 75th street we kind of broke over there with the ambulance 14 what was a typical like what's a typical run volume for you uh, 20 run day was was it was an average day less than 20 runs was a good day So 24 still really hasn't changed no that's Uh, a tough neighborhood i mean you have uh lower lower socioeconomic people that are living in the area and then in the middle of the night they're a little bit buffered now by ambulance 50 but you would go over to south shore where the older generation people lived and they had real illness. They had CHF. They right. had heart heart issues. They had uh, high blood pressure. So, and then that would be intermixed with gunshots going west to Inglewood and going north uh, on the south end of the USC campus there. So it was a great 
mix of a lot of great runs and we used to run predominantly to St. Bernard's and USC, a little bit of Inglewood, Inglewood Hospital's closed now. Um, and then Jackson Park and I'm trying to think. Doctor's Hospital was still open, Hyde Park Hospital, I believe it was called, on uh, Stony Island there. So so how, how long did you spend as a single world paramedic? Um, almost 12 years. Wow. Yeah. So and that was... They're, they're crossing over quick now. They are. So I think they started crossing guys over in the contract. I forget which firefighter exam it was. I my my mind fails me on the date. But long story short, they started crossing over guys, I think, at two and a half percent in the contract. Then uh local two was able to bounce it up to five percent. And then I think local two was able to bounce it up to ten percent. And then they they didn't have a lot of guys uh, that were available to cross over in my class. So my class was some retreads that couldn't pass when we crossed with the regular civilian class. There was like maybe a half a dozen of those guys. And then they were making a bunch of engines ALS, so they needed a lot of medics. So they had a special class of 50 medics. So they took 50 medics right off the street That's a lot. And, and put them in class to, to become firefighters. And uh, Herbie Johnson was one of my instructors. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, just a lot of great guys down there breaking us in and being honest with us. You know, I wasn't born with a crooked nose, so I, <laughs> I always speak my mind. That's a benefit and a curse at the same time. But uh, I've been lucky. I've been raised by good people on this job that were always uh, able to tell me, hey, you need to shut up. You're wrong, and this is why. So, you know, I've been lucky in that respect. So you um, you spent, I mean, 12 years is a long time. Uh, were you at 24 the whole time? No. So I got promoted. We were the last class that took the paramedic officer test. It was actually oh. a, so PICs will talk about this now and they won't believe me. So there was actually <laughs> an actual, a physical, actual promotional exam where you actually studied for it. And you took a written exam and you took uh, an oral test where they asked you questions about being a paramedic on the street. I think I took that in... Late 87, I was only on for a year, and then the list came out early 88, and I was promoted. I landed 25. I got promoted right away. Uh, so then I relieved pretty much the rest of my career because you couldn't get a spot back then. Yeah. There were people with 10 and 15 years that were working busy spots, and you needed 20 or 25 you years. You only had 49 ambulances. Didn't matter. Yeah, there was only 49 ambulances. There was no place to go. So I didn't get assigned as a PIC I relieved in the 5th District. I relieved in the 6th District. There isn't a 6th District anymore. I didn't get a spot as a PIC. Uh, my first assignment was Ambulance 29 at Truck 24's house at 104th and Vincennes. So people listening, uh, PIC is the paramedic in charge. So you went from your duties basically driving and administering care to now you're the officer of that ambulance. You know, you're in charge of documentation. And, you know, I'm sure things were the same back then. You know, airway management. And, you know, just all the administrative stuff that, that goes on in that ambulance. Yeah, you know what? It, for me, it was easier. When, the breakover for me was when you guys went to the pads, right? The safety pads, and you had to do it all electronically. For me to crank out an MICU form was five or ten so minutes. So you, you, you strictly did paper the whole time? Strictly there. did paper. So I think there was, and I'm not trying to rub anybody the wrong way <laughs> when I say this, so everybody put your big boy and your big girl pants on. There was a team effort in the back of the ambulance, especially when someone was sick. I didn't care about the paperwork. I cared about patient care and 
my partner in Amos 29, Jose Gonzalez, just retired last year, another top shelf guy, probably the nicest guy I ever worked with ever. A, a true gentleman, never was mean, was never inappropriate. He was obviously the yin to my yang. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was just a great guy. But yeah, I think there was a def- the people would look at each other in the back of the ambulance and say, hey, this person's legit, this patient's uh, sick, I need your help. And as the PIC, your job was airway. So I did a lot of intubations. I did EJs, external jugular sticks, uh, stuff that you don't see paramedics do anymore. It's Cody's favorite. And uh, yeah, some of the West Side guys and South Side guys and girls are probably still doing that. But I mean, they don't teach you that in school. That's something you pick up on the sure. street from somebody else that teaches you that's a senior person that shows you, hey, you can do this much faster. This is a great vein. Uh, and as long as you do it correctly, you're not going to have any issues. I mean, you can, you know, Cody will attest to this that we physically sat down and I was like, you're going to do this. And I kind of like, you talk about being thrown into the water, um, you know, from the first patient that was available. I'm like, you know, here you go, do this because that's the one that you want to practice. Cause there's going to be a time where that may be the only thing that you have and it's, it, it's perfect. And that's not the time to, to learn it. No, right. You know, so. Right. And, the, and I still think that Chicago fire department paramedics and I may be, you know, I may be grinding my own axe here, but they're some of the best in the country. I mean, I see people do stuff on the street, and I just retired a little while ago, so just last year, the beginning, the end of last year, I saw paramedics do stuff on the street that generations before them had done. There's still traditions being passed down from uh, generation to generation, but and I'm not blowing smoke up the city. There's suburban paramedics and there's other cities that probably do the same thing. I don't always see that. I see what I see in my brothers and sisters that I worked with on the street. And 90% of them are doing yeoman's work all the time. And 10% of them are loads. And But that's with any job. Yeah. That's not. Yeah. Go to that, Microsoft. You're gonna, right. The that's percentages not our, are going to be the same. That's not our profession yeah. either. And, and maybe 90% is a high number depending on the day. But everybody yeah. has good days and bad days. Yeah. You know? Okay. So you, uh, you finished up your career on the ambulance, mm-hmm. and you know, for us in modern time, you know, twelve years on the ambulance before crossing over is an eternity now. The way they're the, the turnover rate for crossing over, and for people who don't understand what that is, is a single role paramedic doesn't do any structural firefighting or doesn't do any um, of the uh, fire suppression duties. So they're just strictly EMS. They're, you know, like the uh, um, the title suggests, single role paramedics. So you get the opportunity after, you know, when you're on a list and you get called to cross over to the uh, suppression side. And then again, you have to start back over. You got to go to the academy. And um, now you have to start going through your structural firefighting training. Did you have any of that prior to going to the Quinn? I did. So... Um there's a bunch of guys that I worked with, uh, and I'll just try to blow off, rattle off some names now so I don't forget anybody. Pat Kehoe and I came on the job together, Larry Knight, and I came on the job together. Pat's still in the 6th Battalion. Larry Knight just retired last year from the 6th Battalion. Paul Struby, Dave Thomas, uh, Kitty Giblin, Joni Kelly, now Joni Marcourt after she got married. I had all these great people that were... They had all these different jobs and all these different interests, and everybody knew at a young age, hey, you know what, this is a hard job, this is a great job, we love this job, but this isn't a job that you're going to be able to survive for 30 years. And there's people doing it now, right? So there's people going off the job, single-role paramedics on the EMS side that have worked 25 and 30 years on an ambulance, which to me is 
remarkable, for lack of a better word. Because at the time, when I crossed over, I was probably uh, just shy of 34 years of age. And I was like, man, I don't, you know, I was on Amos 41 down in the loop, which was pretty good. The loop wasn't too busy then. We'd get busy days, but we'd get three or four hours, sometimes five, six hours of sleep at nighttime. And that was a home run. But um, yeah, Pat Kehoe and I went to the Payless Fire Department. They were hiring part-time guys and they would put you through the fire academy. So we kind of knew that we were going to cross over. We didn't know when, so we wanted to get our firefighter two out of the way. And we got hired by Payless. They put us through their academy. They had an in-house academy in that Mavis district. And uh, we went there and that started, actually that started my special operations training. That's where I met guys from the red cart team, guys like Mike McCaslin and Larry McCormick, who were, were very instrumental in Oak Lawn, along with John Mac McCaslin, who was very uh, instrumental in the fire service and getting in training. I met those guys when I was in Payless and they started breaking me in on uh, technical rescue training. It was very early. This was prior to 9-11, so that was probably, uh, heck. So I crossed over in 98. That was probably 94 that I started in Payless, and I worked there for a long time. Guys like uh, Forrest Reeder were there. He's the chief at Tinley Park now. Stan Spitek, he's since retired from there. Steve Carr was the chief. Robbie Nez, who was a boss in Evergreen Park at the same time. Another great department with really good role models of guys that were like, hey, Walsh, zip the pie hole, go outside and do what you're supposed hey, to do. Evergreen Park? Uh, no, I never worked at Evergreen. I stayed at Payless the whole oh, time. Oh, you're talking about Payless. Okay. Yeah, Corey Hojack was a mentor of mine as well. So Corey and I were firemen together at Squad 5. <laughs> and uh, I I love Corey. And if Corey, if you're listening, I had enough of you at the regular house not to work <laughs> with you at Evergreen. Right, and he knows that. So he would laugh about that statement as well. I love you too, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, let me let me uh, back you up here because uh, I read a story. Um, Associated Press did a, a piece on you uh, in '95. Oh, during the heat wave. Yeah, man, you guys do your research. Oh, we don't mess around. This Oof. is Chicago's bravest stories. We're known for our thorough research. Thorough, <laughs> almost as much as the drinking. We're, we're I like for. the drinking aspect. I I would have hired a driver had I known you were going to have brandy old fashions here. Oh, we, we got you the cherries, the orange. We we I know it it's top it. top shelf. Well, the the story. I mean, how did they find you for this interview? I don't remember at the time how I got a hold, how they got a hold of me. Um, the heat wave was. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because um, the story in question sounds like you were at some multi-room uh, dwelling, and you're just basically grabbing people and and running them out of here, and so I, if a I, bunch of dead people. Yeah, so if know. I re, if I remember correctly, at that time I was on Amos Twenty Nine at 104th and Medicines at Truck 24. And just to the east of Truck 24, still district, there's an African-American population that lives there east of Vincennes, older, um, you know, not well cared for, not no access to health care. And if I remember correctly, we did 24, 25 runs that day, and 10 to 12 of them were heat stroke, cardiac arrest. Uh, I worked the first day of the uh, heat wave, and then I worked... I was off for three days, and I came back, so I worked the fourth day. So the fourth day was worse than the first day. They were saying the the temperature got up to 106. and It was ridiculous. So at the time, we didn't even have air conditioning in our house. We had an air conditioner in our bedroom. That was it. We lived on 107th Street, um, and we had a pool in our backyard. We were the only 
house in the neighborhood that they had a pool in the backyard. So everybody in the neighborhood, all the adults, when I wasn't at the firehouse, they were in Walsh's backyard drinking in the pool. <laughs> and we lived in the pool because it would only go down to like 90 or 95 at nighttime. It was ridiculous. And we knew, if you talk to people that worked during the heat wave, we knew something was off. And back, I th I'm not even sure when the breakover point was, but when I first was on the ambulance, and you'll get a kick out of this, when you called for, there was no such thing as calling a company for manpower. That didn't occur. You would ask for help. And if there was an ambulance available nearby, they'd send another ambulance. And that was all the, all the help you got. So that's another, we'll talk about that in a minute. At 49 ambulances, there were a ton of extra ambulances. There was I'm really sure not a lot of help. So there was multiple times back in those days where we would handle several runs at once. It was not uncommon to see two or three BLS patients on the bench seat. You know, the office would call us and say, hey, we got one. You're on Halstead Street. It's on if your we, way. It's on your way. To, it's on your way to Inglewood or St. Bernard's. Can you guys stop there? And if we were BLS, it wasn't an issue. We'd grab somebody else and take them there. So no difference than busy West Side companies and busy South Side companies jumping on extra runs now. Uh, there wasn't the stringent guidelines that there were well, then. Well, there wasn't a mark division back then, right? There was not a mark division, no. So there were district commanders back then. So my district commanders were two two names from the past that you guys will laugh at. So Larry <laughs> Mikaitis was one of my district commanders, and Cesar Blanco was the other one. And uh, I haven't heard from Cesar Blanco in a very long time, but Chief Makaitis passed away a few years yeah. ago. Yeah, he was a pretty fair guy. Blanco, not so much. <laughs> but yeah, so we were very, the heat wave was ridiculous, and we kind of knew by day three, I worked the fourth day, that something was up and people were dying at a record rate. And I think, if I, my memory serves me correct, over 900 people in a, in a, in a, in a seven-day period. And that's the first time that I ever saw LeGru food trucks LeGru refrigerated food trucks outside of the right, morgue. The, the corner had the, they like commandeered yeah. um, refrigerated We appropriated. Yeah. Yeah. And those just, were the same food lives. trucks that they stored food at a Taste of Chicago. So that okay. kind of flavored my, <laughs> flavored my uh, affinity for going to Taste of Chicago ever again. And that's no lie. It's a yeah. LeGru. If LeGru's listening, I apologize, guys. Yeah. I was young and I was impressionable at the time. I've gotten over it since then. But, I mean, it's pretty much like what you're seeing in New York now with the COVID response. I mean, they're using refrigerated yeah. food trucks to store human bodies. And then the funeral homes can't keep up with the people that are passing away. It was... It was a travesty, and I think for the fire department and for uh, OEMC, who's kind of in charge of that now, you know, they're very in tune to weather and how it affects people, just like the blizzard and all those people trapped out on Lakeshore Drive, which was another night I was working. So well, that yeah. didn't fall under special operations. That whole yeah, we so I was working for Chief Fox at the time. We'll get into that. And okay. That's a whole other story. Right, but we had, we're still crossing you over right now. Yeah, right? I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Right. Yeah. And, and only yeah. only half a drink too. Yeah, and so only ha I'll, I'll have another drink. Yeah, okay. I promise. <laughs> you guys got me running my pie hole as usual. That's you know what, and just so everyone knows, like that's why Vince is doing these like drawn out explanations is because because Tim wants to get a couple of drinks in here and there, so we got to like kind of space it out. And a then I'm gonna be sorry for what I say after I have a couple more drinks, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's not a live show. We have, we have the city's best editor oh, okay. on it, so we'll clean it up. Yeah? <laughs> we'll clean it up. Um, so, go ahead, Cor. Oh, you know what? Uh, I mean, going along with this with this situation, I mean, uh, I guess 
Well, I guess we'll get into task force stuff later on then too, because that's kind of the same role. But yeah. I mean, going back to like the COVID responses and and you know the reappropriating the the um, freezer trucks, like that's that's something we talk about all the time. Like doing even just doing this podcast, like we're like I think us as firemen and and paramedics, like we're just we just have this attitude of like you know we we're thrown in situations where we got to make something work. You know, right. it's not like it's not like your your standard you know your standard job where you walk in and and you know i'm a hvac tech and and you walk in and like oh well the electric feed isn't here today so i may have to make sure this happened you know i'll talk to this supervisor and get this done for next day it's like we show up in a situation we've got to do something one way or another we got to try and fix this problem no matter what and going along with like the COVID thing you know it's like well you know we got we got freezer trucks Keep yeah. me cold. Yeah, so they, you guys, I know Vince knows this because he and I have talked about it. So they actually have actually done studies on firefighters and paramedics across the country, right? Right. So that part of your brain that you're talking about, our PDM, rapid prime decision making, mm-hmm. there's only a few percent, few professions in the world where people are given, here, here's what's happening, now decide. And there's not an option A and there's not an option B, there's an option, option C. You have to choose the best option at the time mm-hmm. to no different than you pulling up on a gunshot wound or Vince pulling up on a gunshot wound and the offender's still there on the west side. Are we going to pull down the block? Are we going to stop here? Are we going to turn the lights off? You have to make a decision now. Right. So there's not a lot of jobs like that. And the autonomy that the fire department gives you when you're young. I was a 24-year-old paramedic officer from the suburbs with a year and a half of experience on the street. And now I'm making decisions with my partner as to how we're going to approach scenes, what we're going to do. It's... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's I mean, I have a son that's 26 and I wouldn't want him to have to make those decisions now at 26, even though he was in the airborne and uh, for four years. But I guess you, at the time you don't think about it. You're like, yeah, no problem. We got this. This is easy. But that that I imagine, I mean, just personally, that early in your career, ha- having to make those decisions, it's like um, muscle memory. So that, you know, uh, that decision making, you show up to a, a plan and you have, you know, five gunshot victims, Ho- hopefully that you've done a plan with less victims and you kind of start building that muscle memory so that by the time you have a big incident, you know, let's say Navy Pier at 4th of July. Right. <laughs> that, I, I mean, for instance, you know, when just you grab know, it. Oh, were you there that day with... Uh... It, yeah. 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 Was he there? We haven't had, he I ran the whole incident. I haven't had a chance to talk to him about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's the same motion that you go through running a, a smaller plan. It just the scale is bigger, but your decision making is the same. Correct. You know, you you know what your priorities are, you know what you have to do, and you're mentally just going down that checklist. Yep. So, you know, if somebody is good at making those decisions on a small scale that definitely 100% benefits you for the big one that's going to eventually come down in your career. So, you know, don't take those small ones. Use those small ones as your as a lear- yeah. yeah, it's a learning tool. It's Absolutely. a total learning tool. Everything you do on this job, no, no matter what division you're in, where you serve, what your rank is, is a learning tool to benefit the people that you work with. Not only the people that you serve, but your partner, if you're just a single role, or your company, if you're a company officer, your battalion, if you're a battalion chief, everything builds to the next level. And uh, I had two great mentors when I was on the end with Johnny Fear, who's still alive and 
a great guy. John used to say whatever was on his mind, but John was a human resource guy. I never met a boss that cared about his people so much in his whole life. He would come to me every day and my partner, and my partner was not so as Kevin O'Shea, Jimmy's younger brother. And he would say, how are you guys? What do you need? How are you feeling? Everything good. You don't hear bosses talk like that anymore. And I took that from John as a young paramedic, and I used that later in my career. And then another guy who you, who you know, Vince, and you probably know too, uh, is Kevin Kirkley, who just retired a couple of years ago. Yes. Kevin Kirkley was a, was a paramedic officer when I was a young FPM. And I can remember working on Christmas Day, probably 1986, six months after I got on the job, Kevin Kirkley and I at Ambulance 24. And the first run of the day was a head-on collision on 63rd Street underneath the L tracks with three fatals and a mother and a child. And I looked over at Kevin. It was not even 7 o'clock in the morning. We made relief. We cleaned our ambulance. We jumped on the ambulance. That was the first run of the day. I looked over at Kevin. I was in the car taking care of patients, and he was calling for more resources like Merry flipping Christmas, man. Merry, that, <laughs> I hated working Christmas. I still hate working Christmas. Yeah. I don't mind working any other day in the firehouse. But Christmas was the day, and it was probably because of that day and other days that I worked, that was a day that I, I just, Kevin and I still talk about it now. We talked about it on the day he retired. Yeah. He remembers it like it was yesterday. I remember it was like it was yesterday. It was 25 or 26 runs, and they were all miserable. Gunshots and traumatic arrests and people dying and people that were sick later in the nighttime. And that's, that stuff never leaves you. Well, we, a lot of the guests that we've had on before, they well, we call back to these runs, and, I mean, Kevin Casey was talking about runs that he can remember like it was yesterday, but you asked the same guy, you know, a run from yesterday, last day. I, I, I can't remember, you know, what about yep. this? I don't know, but there's certain things that stick with you, and, you know, I, I certainly have those runs too. Um, but, uh, um, you know, like you're saying, uh, you, you can tell a lot about a person by how they act during those scenes like what you're describing, um, you know, and I've worked with, um, you know, Chief Kirkley a, a lot, you know, prior to his uh, retiring, and the worse the scene got, the cooler he was. Yeah, he was you a top-shelf man. Yeah. And never, one of my, never saw him, like, lose his cool, never got And a wicked out. smart sense of humor, oh, right? Yeah. I used to yeah. laugh with him all day long when I was his partner. I, I think Pat Kehoe was his partner before I was. And then Greg Fricks, who just, I think Greg is still on the job. But just a really top-shelf guy that laid the groundwork for me and reined me in when I was misbehaving and said, uh, hey, that's enough of that. We're not going to do that. Don't do that. This is what we're going to do. And it, you got to be able to have an adult in the room, and I wasn't always the adult in the room, that's for <laughs> sure, to be able to rein somebody in. Nancy Gill is another name that comes to mind. I don't yeah. know, if Vince, if you know Nancy Gill. No. Nancy Gill was a trailblazer, man. She worked a busy company her whole career. She, I think she retired off ambulance 50 at 126's house. And if you've ever worked there, or if the you've ever worked there. The ambulances out Oh, there. man. Well, Three-story walk-ups, Court, tough neighborhoods, courtyards. courtyard buildings. Everybody's sick. Yeah. There's no, and then tons of trauma there, lots of gunshots. It's violent uh, over in that part of the area of the city. And this lady never had a bad day. Much like Kitty Giblin, Joni Marcourt, Joni Kelly, always a smile on her face, always working hard. I worked with Kitty on Amos 33, Joan on Amos 38. You know, there were was. You, were you assigned to 33 at, at one point? No, so there? back in, when I was assigned to 41, that was when they first started doubling up medics. Okay. So it took me 
11 years to get to Amos 41. And I thought, and I thought I was like, man, this is effing ridiculous. I got Amos. Look him in the face and tell him that. Am, like, is that where no you're signed? No, he has no idea the hardship. Like Amos 41, when I was, so that was like 1997 was the shit, man, because you were busy all day. You still probably did 15 or 18 runs. But at nighttime, the South Loop wasn't what the South Loop is now, right? So it would shut down. So you'd get four, five, maybe even six, maybe even a whole night's sleep there. And uh, that was lights out. To be able to go home, rested the next day. I had young kids, you know. Two-man two man stretchers back in your day? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like they didn't yeah. have the electric one. There was no the, such thing. No, we had the fern, the fernal back, the fernal backbreakers. Back yeah. yep. <laughs> Life pack tens, you know, that weighed 80 pounds. Right. And did you always have to take that big tackle box everywhere you went? No. Okay. Come on, let's be realistic. I mean, uh, I carried in theory. What, in theory? No, not even in theory. I, I stole what I needed out of the out of the tackle box and put it in the QRB so that okay. we were efficient. Okay. Back then, guys used to have trays, too. I don't. You, we, we used did you have to a tray have, on the yeah, west side? Yeah. So every platoon had a tray of stuff that they thought was integral to work in their day on the ambulance. Fourteen gauges, ten gauges, twelve gauges. Certain everybody had dressings. It set up everybody had ways. their own tray. Yeah. And everybody took the tray out in the morning, and there was a complement of required gear on their rig. But everybody worked off their own tray pretty much all the yeah. time. I forgot where I was going. I'm just going <laughs> off on a tangent now. That's all right. We're <laughs> we're gonna steer you right back on track. Yeah. Um, so. How long was you? So you crossed over. You have to go back to the academy. You have to go yeah. back through another academy. How long was that academy? Back I think it was three months. Three months. So yeah. it's the same, right? Gary Flavin, Johnny Jackson, uh, Larry Knight crossed over in the class before me. I just missed that class, even though there was some load civilians that dropped out. Yeah. Didn't know how the good they had it. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't ask anybody else. And I'm trying to think who else was in my class. Pat Kehoe, Kevin Helmold. Um, just great guys. And we Did you went say Dave Thomas was in that Dave one Thomas, too? I believe, was yeah. in that class. No, Dave might have been in the class before me. Mm. I think he was because all our seniority numbers at the time, and so you'll get a kick out of this, at the time your seniority number was based upon when you applied for the job as a single-role paramedic. So when you graduated paramedic school, the list was always open. You go down to City Hall to the personnel department, which is, I think, still on the 10th floor. Is that right? Uh, City Hall? No. Seventh floor? Seven I, or ten? I, I had to go out to the first floor to fill out that card. So no, there was none of that. You'd go right up to the right up to the right up to personnel with your paramedic license and you'd fill out the application and you'd put it in and they'd number it right there. They'd timestamp it and number it. Well, we did that, that at a different building. Okay. And then when you got hired, that was your number. Really? Your number was when you graduated paramedic school. That's how they uh, that's how they generated your number. And that's the number you kept even when you crossed over, because they just they filled you in by uh, we went in after, like, so the guys that came out in July of 86 had better seniority numbers us than firemen. And then we got the back end as paramedics. We crossed over. What and was then, your seniority number? Ooh, man, good question. So 557. 557. As, as a paramedic, <laughs> right? I think that was my seniority. What's yours now, Vince? 1918. Yeah, 557. What about you, Cody? 2390. <laughs> yeah, 2390. 557 was my medic seniority number. And I think my fireman number was uh, 4100. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Ironically, so. 1918 was the year Vince was born, too. <laughs> really? <laughs> Can I have another one of these? Yeah. Anybody's making cocktails? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, let's, uh, let's pause right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 